People think I'm damaged goods. I'm worried about losing my job. Will I ever get a transplant? I want to see my children graduate from college. How can I afford this? I don't want to be a burden. I'm afraid. I'm overwhelmed with information. Sometimes I wonder if I'll ever fall in love and get married. I just want to play with my friends. You're listening to Kidney Talk, streaming health, happiness, and hope to the renal community with your hosts, Lori Hartwell and Stephen First. We're back with another week of Kidney Talk. Oh, boy. I know. Can you believe it? I think we're about ready to celebrate over 50 shows. Really? Yes. Can a you believe that? episode. I remember when I did St. Elsewhere, we did our 100th episode. And it was a really big deal. And People Magazine came out. You think they'll come out to do our 50th episode of Kidney Talk? I hope so. I mean, why shouldn't they? Well, I know. We're helping more people than St. Elsewhere did. <laughs> but we have a great guest today yes. to celebrate our almost 50th show. Is he our exact 50th show? If you let me look, I can tell you in a minute. No, we, we can't. don't have time. We're on radio. <laughs> We're here with Bill Dan, and he is a pioneer in kidney disease. I, I mean, know, because he started like in the 70s when, when they had that committee almost, right? Yeah, well, actually, the committee was in the 60s. Oh, in the but, 60s. But in the 70s, they had more archaic kind of equipment, and he actually had one of those huge machines where they actually had to, he's going to explain it to us, but um, he did home dialysis. Home um, dialysis with a machine that, that looked the like a washing size machine. of a Buick. Yes, and he, uh, you know, was young, had a career, and he learned how to live his life. He was on dialysis for over 18 years, and he now has a transplant for over 12 years. Wow. So he's he's pretty lucky guy. Oh, man. And he is, he and is he an incredible great. advocate. If you want anybody to go after, get something done, give it to Bill, because he is chronically persistent. He is so determined in his goals and missions that he makes things happen. Wow. So when we come back, we're going to talk more about this really interesting story that he has to tell us. Hi, my name is Jenny Huey. There is a critical shortage of organs. 91,000 people are waiting for a transplant. I am one of those people waiting for a kidney like many of you listening. I wait for my transplant coordinator to call me with the good news that they have a kidney for me. Other young women my age are waiting for that special someone who they met online at that dating website, Match.com, to call. And I'm waiting for the right cross-match. It is important that we all inform our friends, family, and co-workers about the importance of becoming a donor and to make sure they sign a donor card. Also, they need to discuss this very important decision with their family. We all need to bring awareness to the public about the importance of giving the gift of life so I can continue on with my life, dialysis-free, and have guys waiting patiently by the phone for me. It was a miracle. It was a miracle! Wonder of wonders, miracle of miracles, God took a Daniel once again, stood by his side, and miracle of miracles, walked him through the lion's den. Well, we're here today with Bill Dan, who's a dear... I love Bill Dan. You love everybody. Is there anybody you don't love? Well, well, I don't know. I can't say. (laughs) Well, welcome to the show, Bill. Thanks, Lori. It's great to be here. Well, tell us a little bit about your story and your background. My story is is that when I was 18, I went into the doctor's office 
and he did a little protein in the urine test for me, and he said, you've got four plus urine, uh, four plus protein in urine. I thought, what the heck does that mean? And I soon learned I had kidney disease. Oh, you thought he was just saying that you're really strong, you got a lot of protein. Yeah. I, I thought I was just a tough guy, but uh, I was really lucky. Uh, we watched it closely, but back in those days, there was really wasn't much you could do. What year was this? 1960, when this happened. Wow. You were 19 in 1960. Uh, 18, actually, Stephen. 18. See, he lies about his age, <laughs> just like everybody, just like everybody. Okay, and what happened when you found out this protein in your urine stuff? Well, I didn't really understand what kidney disease was at all, but I got my education, and I was a very lucky guy because my disease is called glomerulonephritis, and that one takes a long time. And so I was actually 35 years old before my kidneys finally failed, and I wasn't a really very good patient because I waited too long. You waited too long. So you basically, throughout your whole, uh, all your 20s and everything, you knew you had kidney disease. Did they, this was in the early pioneering stages. Did they tell you anything on how to help protect your kidneys? Like, we have so much education out now, but did they know anything back then? Actually, nothing at all. I read everything I could, but... I really didn't learn anything. Uh, so they didn't tell you to restrict, to my life. They didn't tell you to restrict your protein or not no. to drink so much. And no, nothing. no, not at all, Stephen. And so you found out you had kidney disease, and you started dialysis. Did they put? Did they educate you about the access? If you should put a fistula or a graft in, or did they just wheel you into the hospital and make all the decisions for you? I was really a very lucky guy because my home area, the Salt Lake City area, was one of the real pioneers in dialysis. And so uh, about uh, April of 1977, they took me into a dialysis unit. And it was, I'm sure, it was absolutely the most horrible experience I've ever had in my life. Uh, just that when you walked in and you saw, or, or just the fact of being on the machine? Oh, it was, I wasn't on the machine, Stephen. You were just... They said, you're going to go on dialysis. We'll take you to a dial uh, dialysis unit, and you can see what it's going to be like. So I walk into this room in the hospital, and there's about 10 hospital beds in there. And back in those days, the treatment was administered by nurses. So there's these RNs, and, and the patients were lying on the bed as though they were right next to death. And right next to them was this, the patient was a great big machine about the size of a washing machine. And in the top, it had a bowl. And there was this yellow fluid in there that looked like urine. And right in the center, like a science fiction movie, was this long red cylinder about 18 inches high and 6 inches around that looked to be full of blood. And this yellow fluid was gurgling out of the top. And it was so horrible. It sounds like the centerpiece <laughs> I had at my wedding. <laughs> the centerpiece you had at your wedding? You're crazy. Um, what was your life like when you were diagnosed with kidney disease? Were you married? Did you have kids? When I was first diagnosed at 18, I hadn't yet gotten married. Um, and there was lots of great girls around, and I certainly didn't want to settle on one at that age. <laughs> well, but when you were 35, did you have a wife? Did she... Uh... I had a wife, uh, a real sweetheart, because when, when I proposed to her, I told her that I had kidney disease, and we went in and saw the doctor, and he told her what that would likely mean. And uh, she was. Um, she good married you better for worse. That's huh? right. Oh, what's her name? Uh, my wife's name is Doris. Mm -hmm. And uh, Doris really did take me for worse. 
because uh, when I turned 35 and got kidney disease, I went into that unit, as I said. I came out almost sick to my stomach. It looked so horrible. And I promptly went home and paid no more attention to what anyone said. I said, I am not sick. I am perfectly healthy. And I was just doing the things normal people do. I'd get up in the morning, go to work, come home, go to bed, and do nothing um, at all until I got up the next morning and went to work. And on the weekend, I did what everybody does. I came home at 5 o'clock Friday night, climbed into bed, and didn't get out of bed again until first thing Monday morning. Wow. And she kept telling me this wasn't normal. <laughs> but I knew that it was. I just had a little flu. You had a little bit of denial going on, huh? <laughs> uh, maybe. I don't know. But I did reach the point where I couldn't eat any more food. And all I could do is drink water and vomit it up. Right, because your body was so full of toxins. Um, that's one of the things I think patients don't understand is that when you become nauseous, it's because you have so many toxins in your body. Your body's saying, I don't want any more food. I can't handle any more. And that's what makes you nauseous, and that's what makes you throw up. It's your body saying overload. Yeah, Bill, I did the same exact thing. You know, I, I did went through this whole denial period, and I went off, and I actually went and directed a film over in Europe, and... I was uh, getting sicker and sicker, and then I got, I luckily made it through the film, and I got back to the United States, and uh, I started to throw up at night, and I'm going, oh my gosh, this, I must really do have kidney disease, even though I kept putting it off, but the same thing happened to me until I started to throw up, and I wasn't able to hold food down. I, I, I was in total denial. I can direct a movie. I can work 17 hours a day. But then it was the throwing. And I was really tired, too. But uh, I could handle that. But when I started to throw up. That almost, was the key. Yeah, three I threw up three times. And then it took me three times throwing up at night in a row. And I said, you know what? Maybe there is something to this kidney disease. And I, then I went on dialysis. So you started dialysis at what year? I started dialysis in 1977. August was the month, actually. And did you start on in-center? PD wasn't really available at that time, because um, I started in 79, peritoneal dialysis, and it was just beginning. So I imagine you started hemodialysis. I did start hemo, Lori. And what was that like? I mean, what was the treatment like back then? Was it still that same gurgling? Did they put you on that gurgling wedding cake machine that uh, Stephen was talking about? I was on the gurgling machine. Uh, I'm kind of an independent soul, and so I said, doctor, doctor. I've heard there's something called home dialysis. Can I do that? And actually, that was really the main option then. Mm -hmm. Most patients were on home. So soon enough, my bedroom was all fixed up, and I had one gurgling machine right in there, and my sweetheart, uh, machines kept getting better and better and better, but my sweetheart was my partner for 18 years. Someone once said, if you get kidney disease, and you try to dialyze at home, then you know how much your wife loves you. Oh, wow. Oh, so your wife was your, did she tantalize you? And No, in fact, that was really a kind of a, what I'd call a sticking point, Stephen. Um, <laughs> no pun intended. Uh, she was taught to, to cannulate me, and the first time we went home, it was so horrible. She succeeded, but she said, I have terrible nightmares. I can't do this. So uh, I volunteered to uh, cannulate myself, figuring there wasn't any alternative. And how long were you on home hemo? Uh, 18 years, Lori. 
Wow. Can you imagine? 18 years. years. And did you see the, you've seen firsthand the evolution of dialysis and the equipment in the units and how things are becoming more advanced. That's for sure. It it was amazing. Uh, When I first went home with the gurgling space machine, I kind of call it a space machine like something space aliens <laughs> would, would put. Uh, when I came home with that machine, there were really there's only one safety device and that was if the fluid, the yellow fluid, which was really the dialysate cleaning the blood, but it had the waste products in it and you could see it. If that got enough blood in it and it took enough, then an alarm would go off. But that was the only safety measure in the entire system. Was it hard to learn the machine? Was it complicated? It really wasn't that bad. It took about four weeks, Stephen, for us to be trained in those days. Mm-hmm. So uh, kidney disease has advanced so much in your lifetime. I mean, this was 31, 30, I got to do my math here, a little, almost 30 years ago That's right. that you started. What did it, why did it take you so long to get a transplant? Did you go on the list right away or you just said, no, I just want to do home hemodialysis? Lori, transplants back in 1977 weren't that great. And this very unit that I saw that almost made me throw up, um, there was a girl in there being dialyzed who had a kidney transplant. She was engaged, and her sweetheart came in and would hold her hand during dialysis. And her transplant was unsuccessful, and she died. So that's really not a great introduction to transplants. No, it certainly isn't. And so I made a commitment to myself that I would stay on dialysis until my last child graduated from high school. And then I thought, well, they can afford to lose their dad after that. But I was young and foolish. How many Uh, children do you have? I have two. Two children, and you saw them both graduate. Then you decided to go on the transplant list? Well, I kind of started to die, and so I thought it was time to get on the list. You started to die? Well, we need to take a break. Yeah, we need to take a break. I want to hear about when you started (laughs) to die. That's the interesting part. Postman, here you go. Hmm. I won the million-dollar giveaway sweepstakes. Oh, I finally got my tax refund check. Oh, my God. I I can't believe this. I got my order of Dairy Delicious. Oh, boy. Milkshakes, creamy soup, cereal with milk, and pudding. (laughs) Why is Mr. Smith so excited about his Dairy Delicious? I have a hint. You see, Mr. Smith is on dialysis, and Dairy Delicious is real milk especially created for kidney patients. It has half the potassium and half the phosphorus of regular 2% milk, but it has 100% of the flavor. Perfect for people who love dairy products and need to keep their lab values normal and dietitians happy. And most of all, it's delicious. Thousands who have tried Dairy Delicious sing its praises. See what I mean? To order your own Dairy Delicious and possibly get as excited as Mr. Smith here, call 1-877-4-DAIRY-7. That's 1-877-432-4797. Or visit DairyDelicious.com. Dairy healthy. Dairy good. Dairy delicious. The milk that's made for you. Driving a cab in a Big Apple could really get on your nerves. With all the traffic, the noises, the rude drivers. Oh, watch where you're going, wise guy. Get some glasses. Oh, where was I? Oh, yeah, the rude drivers. There's one thing I wish was a little louder or not so quiet. Secondary hyperparathyroidism. I know it's a big word, but you know what? It's a big problem. It's often referred to as a silent disease. I didn't even know what I had until I experienced weakness, achy bones, itchy skin, and sexual dysfunction. But you didn't hear that last one from me. Some people call it the bone disease because of the loss of too much phosphorus and calcium. 
But what you don't know, Mr. Smarty Pants, is that it also affects soft tissue like the heart, the lungs, the blood vessels, bada bing, bada boom, and that's about everything. So don't be a wise guy. Wise up and talk to your doctor about the big boy. Secondary hyperparathyroidism. Whoa, for crying out loud, do me a favor, Grandma. Get off the road and throw away your keys. Wonder of wonders, miracle of miracles. I was afraid that God would frown. But like he did so long ago in Jericho, God just made a wall fall down. So, Bill, you're at home. You're on this gigantic uh, wedding centerpiece display with the gurgling <laughs> thing, science fiction-y. And, uh, you know, what was one of the more scarier experiences you had with this machine? I think the scariest experience I ever had, Stephen, was the time that uh, my wife forgot to put the dialysate in the machine, so we dialyzed me against tap water, and I definitely don't recommend it. <laughs> it's not very. Uh, it's not a good what idea. What does that is do? It? What does that do to you? Well, Bill can explain it because it's pretty serious and it's life-threatening. Well, what happens, Stephen, is when the water is right next to the dialysate membrane against your blood, it sucks all of the minerals out of your blood almost instantly, your red blood cells pop, and all the potassium in it is released into the blood. And potassium actually is the chemical that's used to execute prisoners. And so you are getting a fatal dose of potassium back down the line. It's called hemolysis. Your blood is hemolysizing, is that do, correct? And you didn't even commit a hemolyzing. crime. Hemolyzing. Oh, actually, your blood is hemolyzing. I didn't say that correctly. Yes, my blood hemolyzed. And what does it look like? I mean, because, you know, this doesn't happen very often in dialysis, but it can. I mean, something can happen. And what does the blood look like when it's returning to you? The blood in the bloodline normally looks like, well, blood. Ketchup. <laughs> ketchup. Well, a little dark for ketchup. Yes. But but what it looks like is cherry Kool-Aid. Mm -hmm. Clear fluid coming back into you. And so I kept a hemostat clamped onto my shirt just in case, and I quickly snapped the hemostat on there, and I was fortunate enough I was able to stop enough of the potassium coming, and it didn't kill me. But I went to bed that night, and as I laid in bed, my heart would go pump, pump, pound, pump. Bang! And I laid there all that night. Scariest night of my life. I thought, you know, I think I'm going to die before the night is out. But fortunately, early in the morning, I went up and went in the dialysis center. And they said, we need to dialyze, dialyze you right away. What so was your potassium, did. do you know? They didn't test it. When I got into the center, they put me on the machine right away and wow. dialyzed me. Boy, your wife must have had such guilt uh, associated with that incident? I don't think she did. I think we both knew something could go wrong, and um, uh, good Lord blessed us, and we made it through that one. You know, nowadays when you see, I don't know, if, have you seen the Next Stage machine? I have. It's a wonderful machine. It yeah. looks like about a hundred years advanced beyond what I had. I know. It's amazing when you see what you had in the Next Stage machine, which is like the size of a small microwave oven. You know, uh, it's amazing, right? All that medical technology it's is is incredible. amazing. Well, you decided your your children graduated from high school. What made you decide to get on the transplant list? And did you get a living donor or a deceased donor transplant? Lori, I think no longer, no matter how long we're on dialysis, sometimes we don't understand our treatment. And this is what happened to me. I got sicker and sicker and sicker. Not as sick as I was before I started treatment, but I was very, very ill. And my family said to me, 
Uh, my kids said, Dad, you're really looking sick. I don't think you're going to make it through the winter. So I applied uh, for a transplant. I was accepted, and uh, I continued to get sick, and I went... Now, why to... were you getting sick even though you were on dialysis? Well, Stephen, that's the most interesting point of all. As an experienced dialysis patient, I didn't realize I was under-dialyzed. I dialyzed with the biggest dialyzer you could get, with the fastest dialysate flow the machine would do, with the fastest blood pump speed that my fistula would tolerate for four and a half hours, three times a week, which is a pretty good dose. Yeah, that is. But it wasn't enough for me, and I didn't realize that. I thought the fault was the fault of dialysis, but it wasn't. I just didn't have enough. Do you, so, were you compliant in your dietary restrictions? Very compliant. And you just your body was saying that, hey, I still need more. I still need more. Wow. Wow. So you decided to get on the list, and then how long did it take before you, you got the transplant? Uh, this was another blessing in my life. I have a good friend who said, you're a Mr. Miracle Man. I've had a lot of wonderful angels come into my life and help me. In this case, um, I went to the transplant team, and I said, you know, I'm really getting sick. I... My family thinks I'm going to die. And I said, well, our, our count is, is uh, this was in November, our count is that you will probably get a kidney next August. So I went home and thought, well, I'll just do my best. And on September 19th of that year, there was something that's called a zero mismatch kidney, meaning that it was perfect for me. And so I was uh, transplanted that December 19th. And how many years ago was that? 12 years, Lori. 12 years ago. And you got the same kidney. No, I don't have the same kidney, Stephen. I have three kidneys. Well, yeah, three <laughs> kidneys. So listen, Bill, what is your vision that you'd like to d- teach other patients th- that have kidney disease? What is your vision and what you want them to learn? I think the most important thing that happened to me was having angels, uh, doctors, nurses, technicians who said, hey, Bill, I think you ought to do this, giving me ideas to take charge of my own treatment so that instead of depending on them, I felt like whether I live or die is my responsibility, um, not somebody else's. And what do you help other patients listening will take away from this? Because we all know healthcare professionals are our lifeline, but what are some of the steps that patients can do to go take charge of their own health? I think, Lori, you first have to make the decision that A lot of people in your life as a patient are paid to give you treatment. And some of those people have hearts so big they care about you and want you to feel better. But in the end, you can't rely on your world being full of those kind of people. You have to say, these people are paid to give me treatment. I'm responsible to live and be healthy, and nobody's paid to do that. And you just got to take charge of your health, go out there. Find out your own solutions and take care of yourself. Well, what are you doing now, Bill? What's, what is your life like now? Um, tell us about your family, your, your children. I know you have grandchildren now, so tell us about it. I have two of the most beautiful, cleverest, kindest children in the world living in my house. My granddaughter, Brenna, and my granddaughter, Caitlin. They uh, live with you? They live with me. Oh, wow. And uh, I care for them. I went back to school, Uh, though looking at me, you may think I'm 21. (laughs) I'm actually 65. I went back to school in 1999. 
to the professional photography school at uh, my local university, Brigham Young University. Spent four years there. I'm now editorial photographer, uh, grandchild raiser, and uh, happy camper. So it's all been worth it, hasn't it? Oh. So what's it like being 65 and raising youngsters again? Did you you probably thought, hey, I'm done with this. My dues are paid. I I raised two great kids, or I, I forgot how many kids you had. Two. Two. And and here you are zapped. You got these grandchildren. The neat thing about raising grandchildren for most grandparents is you just get to play with them, and then they go home. And I you was don't saying have before, to worry about yeah, it. It's like playing with somebody else's puppy. Yeah. They're really right, nice even. and cute, but then you can get rid of them. But actually, it's super neat raising grandchildren. At 65, you really don't have the energy to go with them. My eldest granddaughter uh, just ran four miles two days ago, and uh, I'm not really up to running four miles anymore. (laughs) But the thing that's so neat is when you've raised your own kids, you kind of see things from their birth to them growing up and becoming responsible adults, and all those little bumps along the way that are so scary when you're a parent you can kind of relax as a grandparent, and you can give them the love that they need and deserve, and it becomes just a totally wonderful experience. Well, great. Thank you so much for coming in, Bill. Yes. What a great, interesting story and great success with your kidney disease and how you took care of it and, and trying to teach other people. Hello? Hi, Mom. Boy, that was some storm last night, huh? We actually lost power for a few minutes. Oh, you think that was bad? You should have seen the one back in 52. Well, now that you're on dialysis, you should really have a plan in case of an emergency. Ha! Last emergency I had was when you got your head stuck in the hamster cage. Scared the little fellow to death. Those big eyes just staring at him. I'm talking about emergencies, like severe weather, earthquakes, or power outages. What if there was no water or transportation to get you to dialysis? It's important to be prepared. You mean like carrying important medical information? Or asking your facility for alternative arrangements for treatment? Or preparing emergency stock of supplies, foods, and medicines? Or learning what diet to follow if your dialysis must be delayed? You already knew all this? I've got to run, Sonny. I'm late for taekwondo. Bye, Mom. But of all God's miracles, large and small, the most miraculous one of all is that out of a worthless lump of clay, God has made a man to die. You know what I'm so amazed is that he survived hemolysis. I know. Oh, that is so freaky. If you're listening out there, um, if that blood is returning to you and it's not a dark red, something is going on. And uh, If it's, it's green, you should really worry. <laughs> really worry if it's green. Yes. Uh, and what is the name of that disease? Hemolysis? Well, it's hemolysis. Your red blood cells are actually splitting. And, and what happens in your red blood cells, you have potassium. Mm-hmm. And the potassium releases in the bloodstream. Which is the last thing a dialysis right. patient wants. And a high potassium can cause your heart to stop. So when you have a splitting of the red blood cells. Yes. I had something similar to that. I had it with the splitting of the personalities. Oh, that was I can of, see that. In my teenage years. <laughs> we can control our own destiny. We can take charge of our health and ask questions about our medical options. We can form partnerships with our health care team. We can take steps towards self-improvement. We can be sensitive to the impact of our disease on our family. We can sing, dance, laugh, and enjoy our lives. We can appreciate today and look forward to tomorrow. We can help and support our fellow patients. 
we can pursue our hopes and dreams. We can make a difference. Renal Support Network would like to thank everyone who has made this show possible. Kidney Talk's founding sponsor is Amgen. Generous support is provided by Roche Pharmaceuticals and Astellas. Friends of Kidney Talk are Abbott Laboratories, American Region, and Fresenius Medical Care North America. Thank you for helping us stream health, happiness, and hope to the kidney community. Visit rsnhope.org for more information. The opinions, recommendations, statements, and advice contained on Kidney Talk are for information only. You should not use the information on the show to diagnose or treat a health problem or disease without first consulting with a qualified health care provider. Please consult with your health care provider about any questions or concerns you may have regarding your condition or dietary regimen.